0: We're in the 12th chapter again of the Gospel of John and I want to begin reading with the 19th verse and I want to read down through the 36th verse. Verse number 19, so the Pharisees said one to another, "You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him." Now, among those who went up to the to worship at the feast, were some Greeks. These are God-fearers. They are Gentiles, Gentile God-fearers. These are not Jews. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went, and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the uh, earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour." But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Thank you, and you may be seated. We have entitled this message, The Hour and the Glory. And we have been going through this portion here. The purpose of Jesus coming into the world was to manifest the glory of God. In chapter 1 and verse 18, we saw that no one has ever seen God... The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus came from the Father to the earth for the purpose of making the Father known. So, with irony here, John reports the frustration of the Pharisees. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after Him. As we pointed out last week there, to them, the world meant just the Jews. All <laughs> you know, the people of Israel, the Jerusalem particularly, There uh, were going after him. John, however, when he uses the term world, has a different understanding. He is understanding it to be uh, all nations of the, of the world here. The, that uh, the whole world has gone after him. In a sense, that is prophetic. (laughs) It's kind of a prophetic statement here. Because in the very next verse there, we find that some Greeks came seeking him. And as I pointed out here earlier, these are Gentile God-fearers representing the building of the universal kingdom. God's intention, even clear back in the Old Testament Scriptures, was that the gospel should go to every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation. And uh, so we read there in the book of the Revelation, chapter 7 and verse 9, that after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Palm branches in their hands. Isn't that interesting? Because we just had the palm, uh, palms used there in the in the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus. The palms indicating royalty, acknowledging royalty. These are with palm branches are acknowledging the royalty. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John here then is charting this path. Of the Savior. The Lamb of God who is taking away the sin of the world. We saw that back in the second chapter. Behold the Lamb of God. That takes away the sin of the world. Here they said the whole world is going after him. Which they meant just the Jews. And they saw their own. Authority being threatened here. But John uses that in the sense of a more universal, in a more universal sense. And so what we have here is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, dying not just for the sins of Israelites and Jews, but for the sins of his people scattered throughout all the earth. And so here the theme of this passage has to do with the hour when Jesus will accomplish this and the glory of God that will result from it. The latter here, the glory of God, strikes a note of glamorous exaltation. However, this is not the reality presented immediately here. It's the ultimate reality, but not the immediate reality. So even though it was predetermined, the cross is what is in view, and Jesus Christ has face is facing this as extremely daunting to him. We can't, you know, we cannot imagine the perfect Son of God who has never committed any sin suddenly with the reality. I don't. I don't think. You know. I don't think it was the. Nails in His hands. I don't think it was the brutality that was to be leveled against His body. Although painful. And and nobody loves pain. I mean, pain is hard. And to have to suffer and bleed and die and be stripped naked and hung up for everybody to see on a cross with all of the pain and suffering that went along with that, that's one thing. And I, that, that would be a daunting thing in and of itself, but I think the daunting task that the Lord Jesus was, is acknowledging here is not so much that physical suffering as it is that His Father is about to lay on Him the sins of all His people. And the sinless Son of God must now suffer and bleed and die under the wrath of Almighty God poured out without measure against His own Son. That's why He prays, Father, if if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will but yours be done. That's Luke 22, verses 41 and 42. And we know it was the Father's will to not save Him from that hour. Because the Father's will is to save all those who will receive the benefits of Christ's suffering in that hour. So we read, however, then at this point here, uh, when he's praying there in the garden, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. To me, that's interesting. He is, I don't think Jesus had, there was any problem with his resolve. He's just saying, Lord, is there, is there any other way? no so the father sends an angel says here to strengthen him and being in agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground this is in the, in Gethsemane and when he arose from prayer he came to the disciples It's settled. It's settled. And so he announces to them, See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't succumb to uh, the pressure, even in, in, in his own mind? So, But this leads us to ask, What's the connection then uh, that his obedience has with the difficult demands that Jesus places on those who follow him? We think about what Christ went through and there is a real sense in which Jesus is saying to us, I expect the same from you. Not, not, not in the degree and not to the purpose. That's why he is able to say, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'm taking up my cross now. And I'm doing it so that you may be able to follow me. Now here's what I expect of you. To die to self. To live to me. To follow me. This is what he emphasized right here in the passage that we read. If anyone serves me, or excuse me, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. He's not our ser- he, he's not our servant. <laughs> he's our savior. But he's also our King. And that we see that in this, this passage too. And we'll we're going to uh, search that out a little bit here as we go. First of all, though, however, let me discuss this matter of the hour. The hour here is signaled when the Gentile worshippers approach uh, seeking Jesus. His response to them was that the hour for the son of man to be glorified had come there in verse 23 this hour was established in eternity past i mean god has every detail worked out perfectly in his schedule nothing nothing comes prematurely and nothing is late <laughs> so we have the hour and it's the same thing with the second coming. You know, we look at it and we say, "Boy, you know, it could sure be nice if he came now." Yes, it would be. But there's a date marked on God's calendar. There's a date marked on God's calendar when you're going to uh, die. We don't hasten it, and we and we and we don't prevent it. It's marked on his calendar. And it's marked on his calendar when he's coming back again. And now here we have this the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Established in eternity past and anticipated from the foundation of the world. So Jesus interpreted this hour by stating the principle behind it. To love one's life is to is a fundamental. Denial of the sovereignty and authority of God. It is to put yourself in the position of God. To love one's life is brazenly to evaluate self to a position of of determination, which is a clear form of idolatry. To love one's life is the heart of sin. Thus, Jesus sets forth the principle that he and those who follow him must must observe. For this grain to be fruitful, it must fall into the ground and die, or it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So Jesus said. Whoever then loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life, and what hate here it means is to place Christ before you. It's not a, you know, I, I just hate my life. No, that's not, that's not what it means. It means Christ has to come before you in everything. one must hate his life be willing that is be willing to lose it in order to keep it to eternal life jesus is going to lose his life but he's going to keep it to eternal life because of the resurrection and the father honored christ's service by making it fruitful and in this way god is glorified and we are glorified in him So that brings us then to the second thing, and that's the glory of God. Jesus' main purpose here is to glorify God. And the way that he would glorify God was by his death on the cross. So then, in his prayer, which we saw here in in verses 27 and 28, let me just repeat those. Now, this, now is my soul troubled yeah this is a daunting task. and what shall I say? Father save me from this hour, which is what actually what he asked there in the in the garden. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he points out this, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. You know here, this, this, this is a, this is a, there's a real important principle. Right here in this verse. Is that here's a principle not only for Jesus but for us too? God lays a heavy burden on us, hard burden to bear. And what is our prayer? Lord, help me, take me this away. Now is my soul troubled. I'm, I'm bearing this heavy burden. This awful thing. Take it away. Ah, but he said, Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But then he had. there's the matter of the will of God, see? For this purpose I have come to this hour. And whatever God brings into our lives, it's the same thing. We say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is what Jesus was essentially praying here. The realization prompted a time of great distress because dying on the cross was horrific. But as I pointed out, also, it's not so much His death on the cross, the physical suffering, as it was that he was going to bear the sins of his people. And understanding this then, and then submitting to the will of God, and the overriding necessity of the cross, led to the glorification of the Father. There's only one thing I want, Jesus said. And that is for you, Father, to be glorified. and we have to be asking ourselves the same question in our life in our life who do we want to be honored in everything we say and do how we live it out so this In this, he pled, honor my obedience. And this, I'm paraphrasing here, honor my obedience by fulfilling the purpose for which you brought me into the world to save it. The implication here is that those who follow him must have the same mindset and submit to the will of God with also full obedience. It was very interesting for me to go back through the gospel of John. And to trace this issue of the glory of God. So I have listed the verses here for you. Let me just share them with you. Back, the first mention of it is in the 7th chapter. There at the feast of uh, tabernacles or booths. And that is the place where he said. Now, this he said about the spirit when he said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink for out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And but then we read there in the thirty ninth verse of that seventh chapter, this he spake about the spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit was not yet given. Why wasn't the Holy Spirit given yet? Well, we read that because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus has to be glorified before the Holy Spirit could be given permanently into the world. So then we go to the 8th chapter, which is at, this, at the same basic time. We read it where Jesus said, if I glorify myself, this is verses 54 and 55, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. Now here's here again is a powerful principle. Jesus did not come to glorify himself. He came to glorify the Father. And so the Father in turn glorifies Him. And if we live to the glory of God, then we in turn are glorified in Him. So in chapter 11 then, when Jesus heard it, that that, that that Lazarus was ill, He said, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now, yes, the raising of Lazarus was a powerful sign. I think it was the sign that God gave to the world that this man that's walking among you, Jesus Christ, is the Messiah. Here he is. And that's a powerful sign, but what? It, but what we what we really see here is this sign began a process. Isn't it interesting? A man is raised from the dead after he's been in the grave for four days, and instead of bringing the hearts of the leadership of Israel to worship at Jesus' feet and acknowledge the sign, they said, we got to do something. What this guy's doing is going to kill us. It's going to ruin us. The, the, the Romans are going to come and take away our nation and we're going to lose our, our income and our, and our glorious position as rulers of the people. So that's what Jesus meant. He's telling them, even before he's dead, he's he's ill, but he's going to die. But his death is not really the end of it. It's for the glory of God. And by the end of the process, the Son of God is going to be glorified through it. Because his desire is to glorify the Father in it. So that takes us then to uh, John chapter 12, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at the first. It's interesting. Twice they don't understand something. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, when Jesus talked about uh, tearing down the... The temple and building it again in three days, they didn't understand that what he was talking about then until his resurrection. Then he understood, they understood that he spoke about his body. Well, here about this matter of his glorification, they don't understand that either. But when Jesus was glorified, now what didn't they understand? They didn't understand his purpose in the plan of God. To glorify himself. But when Jesus was glorified, that is, when he was raised and and exalted to the right right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit given, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Because when uh, when they came to arrest Jesus, what happened to the disciples? They all fled they're all scared. By the way, that's that's Satan's, always Satan's way. He gets us afraid. He puts fear in our hearts. And then we, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Just understand, God has a purpose in everything and He's going to glorify Himself in that purpose. When it's all said and done, you'll understand that then. And then in John chapter thirteen verses thirty one and thirty two, Judas Iscariot. This is at, at the dinner that was held in his honor. There, the first part of the, of, uh, excuse me. This is the, when they ate the Passover together. Excuse me, I was I said wrong. At the dinner that was given to honor him, Judas Iscariot determined then that he was going to, uh, he's going to betray Christ because Christ. Really pointed out the fact that he's a thief, not so much to the others around him, but to Judas himself. Jesus, Jesus was saying in in essence, Judas, I I know exactly what you're doing, who you are, and what you're doing. You're a thief. So now at the at the. uh, Passover dinner, Jesus said, There's one of you who's going to betray me. Well, who is it? Who is it? I mean, they didn't understand. The, Jew, the, the, the Those around Jesus did not understand that it was Judas. But when, so then Judas, Satan, the Bible says, entered into his heart, and when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So that's part that's the process. It wasn't the raising of Lazarus that started it. But now the process is going along, and Judas Iscariot's part of that process because he's going to go out and betray him, sell him for twenty for thirty pieces of silver. So in chapter 15, verse 8, now Jesus is ministering to the, to his uh, own and he says, and by this my Father is glorified that when you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Here's the benefit to you. And the Holy Spirit comes. And so in 16, verse 4, when he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me for he will take what is mine, and declare it to you. And finally, here in his high priestly prayer in chapter 17, and here's five verses, the first five verses, when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The hour, see, has come. Glorify your Son. That the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Notice he puts that in the past tense. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. But in his mind, it's a done deal. I've done it. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And that's really future. Now, Father, glorify me with your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then skipping to verse 5, All mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. God has given him a people. And Jesus is to go to the cross and suffer and bleed and die on account of the people that God has given to him. So the result is all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. That is the people God gave to him. And that brings us then to this, the response of God from heaven. And here again, we have a very interesting situation here. Jesus made it very clear that this voice did not come for his benefit, but for the benefit of those who stood around and heard it. But the voice came from heaven and said to Jesus, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again in the resurrection and the ascension. And so then, the crowd's response to that voice from heaven was two was twofold. Some judged it as a purely natural event. It thundered. There's a lot of people. Ah, it wasn't supernatural. That was just uh, that was a natural occurrence. Naturalists. (laughs) But then there were others who were supernaturalists, and but they said an angel. Spoke to him. They, they can, but see, none of them had the truth about it. It was the Father Himself who spoke. See so what did they, what did they hear, and what and how was it that they came to judge it? Well, the, this is going to be developed in in the, in the following verses there, uh, thirty seven and following, uh, when when uh, uh, these things take place. But, but uh, the point here is, this is now beginning to sort out and to separate those who are really truly His from those who are not His and will never be His. So Jesus explained the judgment of the world to come. And that's where we're going next here with this. And my last point here, the judgment of the world. Because this is the judgment of the world. So we're waiting for judgment to come. Well, yes, there is a future judgment. But the real judgment of the world occurred when Jesus went to the cross. Now is the judgment of the world. When Jesus said... Uh, then the sign of this judgment was the cross. And so in verse 32, Jesus said, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And we have to understand, when Jesus said all people, he's not talking about every single person that ever lived, because he's going he's to separate those people out of their in his, in the next statements, but so what is he talking about? All that the Father has given to me, as he will d- develop that there in the uh, in his high priestly prayer. So the judgment of the world. What and really this is this is an essential thing right here. Jesus is saying the cross is the judgment of the world. And he closes this 12th chapter with a discourse on the theology of unbelief. That's verses 34 through 36. We're saving that for another message. But this explanation officially closed Christ's public ministry. Actually, he finished it before he raised Lazarus. But now it is definitely officially closed. And the Jewish leadership has already determined that Jesus must die. Not only have they determined that Jesus must die, but we also know that the people understood their intention to put Jesus to death, and I'm sure I'll point that out here in a minute. They're not these people are not ignorant. They know Jesus is on the wanted list. The posters are out. If anyone knows where Jesus is, let us know. We're going to come and arrest him. He's wanted. He's a wanted man. And they know that they want to put him to death. So, the crowds who hoped that he was going to establish the kingdom are now disappointed, and they're turning hostile. The pending rejection of Jesus is about to present a problem of monumental proportions. So notice the the response of the crowd then reveals that judgment had come, and two things are to be noted here. First of all, the crowd understood—excuse me—the crowd misunderstood Scripture about Messiah. We, they said here in verse 34, we have heard from the law—that's the Old Testament—we have heard from the Old Testament that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Now that that is an interesting pass or er, uh, section itself. Lifting up, what is lifting up? Technically, lifting up is his exaltation to the throne. And they said. He doesn't need to be lifted up. He is already lifted up. How do we know this? Because see, the second the, the question that they ask immediately is who is this son of man? They, they, don't, have, they don't have any question about that. They, they don't have any problem understanding well, who the son of man is. They are confused by what Daniel had already prophesied there in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. That that one like unto a Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days, and there was given to him an everlasting kingdom, an eternal kingdom that would never be taken away. They understood then that the Son of Man was the Messiah, That Messiah had already received from the Ancient of Days, His Father, an eternal kingdom. He didn't need to be lifted up. And put into that position of authority. So they're saying, who do you think the Son of Man is? So that's the pro- that's their problem. You see, that's their, their comprehension. What are, you, what are you talking about? The Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus made it clear that his lifting up had to go to, had to first be his death. This he said, signifying what manner of death he should die. There's nothing in that prophecy of the Son of Man's being lifted up or put to death either. Now they're saying this lifting up, and they're they're seeing and understanding that that's also being connection here with his dying at the hands of the Jewish leadership. Yeah, he'll be lifted up, or he's going to die. That isn't part of the prophecy either. And what's Jesus' answer to that? Walking the light. Isn't that interesting? How. His disciples don't understand. The crowd doesn't understand. This one doesn't understand. That one doesn't understand. What is the problem? The problem is our tendency to see things in our light, not His light. Well, this is the way I think it should be. When I put these things together, this is the way I see it should be. And Jesus is trying to tell him, huh? So now here's the deal: you need to walk in the light. Jesus was with them; they needed to listen to him and learn from him. And the darkness would soon overtake them. Those who would who chose to walk in the light or the truth would be the sons of light and would easily navigate the darkness. And at this point, Jesus left and hid himself. It says in verse thirty six which is the judgment. He hid himself. And John develops this as we're going to see see in the next message. Now, there's five issues here, and I'm going to close the message with this. There are five issues here that are, are revealed in Jesus' impending passion. And these are short. The first one is... Jesus proclaimed, now is the judgment of this world. While a future eschatological judgment awaits, the cross is the point of division between light and darkness. If you have embraced the cross, you'll never face God in the judgment to come. Oh yes, you will meet the Father who will evaluate what you've done in the will of God, but you'll never meet God as the judge of all the earth because Jesus already met him at the cross. Now is the judgment of this world. And for those of you who have not received Christ, who want nothing to do with Christ, have not made Christ Lord of your life you're going to be you're going to have to feed the father and you're going to have to explain to the father why you refused the son he said well I wasn't one of them that was given to the father or given by the father to the son doesn't make any difference you have an obligation your obligation is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your obligation is to see that you are lost in your eternal sin and you need only Christ. Not good works, not religion, nothing. He And He alone is the answer to your problem. But you refuse Him. You won't believe on Him. You won't trust Him. And one of these days, you're going to have to stand before God and explain to God why you refused His Son. You say, well, I wasn't one of the elect. That's not going to matter to God. You did it. You said no to Jesus. And you're going to have to answer for it. The judgment of this world is come. It's here now. Second of all, the second issue here, that Jesus proclaimed that the ruler of this world is cast out. I saw a little article there about when did Jesus, I didn't read it, but I saw when when did Satan get thrown out of heaven? When Jesus went to the cross. It was a and that corresponds very clearly, in my opinion, with uh, Revelation 12. The great dragon was thrown down, and that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. That was at the cross. And this is his defeat as predicted by Genesis 3 and 5, 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, within thy seed and her seed. You shall bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Then, thirdly, the lifting up here of Jesus, drawing all men, though it requires the cross, actually points to more than that. It's the cross, yes, but the cross was the beginning of that whole process, which then involves the resurrection which was the father's acceptance of his sacrifice. And then the proof of that by the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of the father. So we read there in Isaiah 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So we read there in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Amen. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Great indeed we confess the mystery of God is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit... Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, received in, or taken up to glory. Then fourthly, this lifting up, that is, uh, which draws the elect to salvation. No, as we read there in John 6, we saw back in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's not the cross per se here, but Christ himself. All men. Here refers only to those who are actually drawn, which illustrates, which is illustrated by these Gentiles who sought him. Notice that. Some Gentiles sought him. And that was the sign. The hour has come. Finally, all this comes in the powerful now. Now is the Son of Man glorified. It is not that there will be nothing left for the future consummation, but all is fixed in in this one decisive work of Christ. Just think about that. He lived his life on earth some 33 years. And now these Gentiles come to seek him. And he understands this is the reason I came. The hour is here for the Son of Man to be glorified. And while it was difficult for him to face his determination was let it come. Let it come. The greatest gift that Jesus gave was Himself. And He asks us to give ourselves to Him in the same way. God is not glorified by the, by the elevation of our own selves but by humble service that He makes fruitful. And are we following Jesus to serve Him or for what, for what we can get from Him? And never blame your unbelief on God's sovereignty, as I said before. Nobody's going to stand before God in eternity and said, Well, I wasn't one of the chosen. Mm-mm. Every man has, a, uh, has an obligation because he's a creature of God, created by God to serve God completely. You're responsible for your own failure to believe. And although some believed, they did not confess their faith because they feared the Jews. We saw that in verses 42 and 43. Secret faith is insufficient for salvation. Well, I, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to let my family know because they would be on my case. Well, then you're not you, you haven't believed savingly. Then <clears throat> the self revelation of God. Here is called the Word. We saw that back in chapter one, verses one to three. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Jesus is the living word, and He is the one who reveals the Father, and it is in the written Word of God that the Word of Christ and revealing the Son is found, and thus all judgment is according to the Word. You're going to have to answer to God for what's written in that book right there. Father, I thank You for this passage. It's a tremendous passage. And it tells us that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave Himself. And He did so with full understanding realization of the horrendous effects of dying physically, but more... Of facing the wrath of God in the judgment of the sins that were laid upon him, and he did the will of God. And now he asks us, and he's given us both the Word and the Spirit, and he said, "I will never leave you nor forsake you." And he asks of us to do the same. Father, how can we? How could we even for a moment suggest that you? don't deserve our all. For you gave your all for us. And now, Lord, you want a people who will follow you that you can make fruitful and glorify the Father through you and them. Lord, I pray, God, let us be those people. Work in our hearts these amazing truths. Let us walk in the light as he is in the light. And we'll praise you and thank you for what you do. And I pray for anyone here who is not a believer. Lord, draw them to thyself. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.